Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. You did win technically the highest achievement on all bicycle racing. You did reach the heights of the profession, like you were the best in the world. I think of myself as kind of an outsider that I essentially have been in denial. Like, oh, okay, this person did dope and that's why he won, but nobody else dope. Yeah, I mean, it's misleading that they say they're doing all these tests because really they only test a few people. So to just say, well, we're cleaning up cycling because we tested the guys that are winning. Okay, well then, the goal would just be to get second, I guess. When people look at it and they analyze, those guys are taking drugs, and why would they do that? This is supposed to be a healthy thing. It's not that at all. It's, it's At the highest level, it's, it's a war. It's a war, there's risk, and your body's sort of a machine, and a machine can be... Manipulated. Yeah, yeah. manipulated and programmed and heightened. But then finally what you did was you took back your own voice. You're technically the whistleblower. So what triggered you to do that? FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software to help the self-employed. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four times faster. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com slash James and enter the James Altucher Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com slash James. Very excited to have Floyd Landis, one of the top bicycle racers in history on the show. It's a lot more to the story than that. We're going to get into every aspect of it from training to be world champion level to all of the doping scandals to Lance Armstrong. And finally, we'll conclude with some marijuana. How does that sound? That sounds great. So Floyd, before we get into all the, you were in the news constantly with all the doping stuff and and you were literally the whistleblower on Lance Armstrong, and finally he had to come clean about all of his doping in his past, which kind of you know catapulted you into the news again and again. But before we get into all of that, I want to figure out, like, you obviously weren't doping when you were a little kid and quickly becoming the best in the world at the sport you loved. Like, what got you into cycling and how'd you train and, and why'd you do it? <laughs> yeah, so for me, uh, well, I grew up in... Uh in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as a Mennonite, um, fairly conservative family. What's a Mennonite? Um, Mennonite is similar to Amish. They're more or less 
they originate from the same religion, but the Mennonites just uh, it's just a slight variation, right? Some 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 of them have have electricity, some of them have cars, some of them still use horse and buggies, just like the Amish. Uh, my parents, we had cars, but we didn't have a TV or radio or anything, and so so it's kind um, of like a simple life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea to yeah. avoid it's distractions to the religion and the community right. and so on. Right, and and they're great parents. I mean, I've have a wonderful family, but um, it's a pretty slow life. And so, you know, my parents sent me to public school and, uh, you know, I got exposed to things that otherwise I wouldn't have seen just about the rest of the world. And so uh, I got into to, uh, cycling. Well, mountain biking was kind of, um, so this was early 90s. This was mountain biking first came around and it was kind of a fad, right? And so a lot of kids at school had, had mountain bikes. And so I got one and, and it quickly became just sort of, a, I don't know, like a, a source of therapy for me. I'd ride around and think, you know, about life and my parents' ideas and things like that. And um, so, you know, initially it was it was more uh, therapeutic and and something that I, that I enjoyed doing and, and was good at. Uh, you know, I raced here and there, and often I won. I mean, I was in the junior category, and if if you're talented enough to make it to the Tour de France, generally in a given you know in a given area, if you're racing as a junior, then probably going to win some races. So Now you were you were trading though with your parents from what I read your parents were or your dad in particular was uh, kind of against you doing this frivolous activity all the time. Yeah. <laughs> because because who would think oh uh like you know like let's say you go down a list of kids. Oh, Jimmy, what do you want to be? A doctor. What do you want to be? A lawyer. What do you want to be? An astronaut. What do you want to be? A uh, a uh, bike racer. No one no, no little kid says that. Like you don't even think of that as a profession when you're a little kid or like what made you decide, oh, I'm, as opposed to like football or all these other traditional school sports, what made you decide I'm just going to be the fastest bike racer? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so my parents weren't that they were a little different, right? They they their life focuses on their religion and their and their community and so they're not so career oriented and so i didn't really have any pressure on me to try to do anything of any other use either it was more just they're, they're simple people right typically blue collar jobs or or farming or something like that um but because i was really good at bicycle racing and i, I sort of um you know over a, a few years winning a lot of the local races i got to know other people and so i learned about the fact that there was a professional side to it and, and i didn't you like the people like do you think the subculture of it drew you in a little bit yeah, I don't. I don't really know. You know, I was. I came from a different angle than most of them. You know, not many kids get into cycling on their own. If they do get in a young age, it's often because their parents are interested in it or or encouraging them to do it. Um, but for me, it was it was kind of an escape. And so I, I like the the culture. I like the people. You meet some really weird people in cycling. <laughs> not to offend them, but they're they're they're. It's a quirky group of people who. And uh, essentially addicted to it. I mean, cycling is, can be addicting, just like running or, or anything else, right? Some people, they, uh, you know, they let it dictate their life because they're, you know, they're hooked on that feeling of endorphins or whatever you get from cycling. And, and how would you train? Like you were young and you were moving up the ranks. Like how would you? How would you? Um, I mean, how, how did you know how to train? Even like, did you have a coach? Uh, not not back then. When about the time I turned twenty, I had I got this coach um, through a friend. Um, who uh, a coach who lived out in, in San Diego. His name was Arnie Baker, and um, he was pretty much remained my sort of a, more of a mentor than a coach. That sort of was his style, where he he'd rather teach you, you know, why you should do things, and then let you figure it out, than 
he wasn't the gung ho like football coach yelling and screaming type, which is better. But that's for me. interesting I, though. Like why you should do things like like what would what would be an example? Well, just the the amount of training you should do and the amount of you know rest that you should get for a given amount of training. I mean, some of these things you have to learn just by doing it because everybody's different, right? But some of them, some some things about cycling are pretty absolute. Like generally, the more you do something, this is not exclusive to cycling, but the more you do it, the better you get at it, right? So, but there's a there's a limit to that where. Um, because you can ride a bike for so many hours, it's, it's running's different, right? If you if you ran for six hours, you probably wouldn't be able to run tomorrow. Um, but cycling allows you to to overdo it if if you're not, you know, paying attention to how you feel, and and you can pretty quickly become fatigued to the point where it takes months to recover. So hmm. there's a there's just a lot of a lot to manage in there and a lot to balance. And so some you know some things you learn by trial and error, and some things are, it's helpful to have somebody that's been through it. And so, so you started competing. You were rising up the ranks, state, national, whatever. Like, what, what kind of was a critical point where you said, "Ah, maybe I can do this professionally"? I um, well, when I was so when I was a senior in high school, I was seventeen. I won the junior national championships, which was in uh, Michigan at that time, nineteen ninety three, I guess. Um, and then they so you, <laughs> then the cycling federation, USA Cycling, it's called, uh, sent me to France to go race at the world championships that was part of the sort of the structure they have like they have a national championships and the first few guys there get a slot on the world championships and uh yeah and i had never been on an airplane before i had never (laughs) like i had not really been very far from home michigan was about the furthest i'd been um so yeah the the first that was my first trip to france that was fairly traumatic maybe i should have taken a message from that hasn't been my I've had some real ups and downs in France. Let's put it that way. Well, well, <laughs> and up being you did win technically the 2006 Tour de France, the highest achievement on all bicycle racing. Um, and then, of course, there were issues which we'll discuss. But uh, but you did reach the heights of the profession, like you were the best in the world. Yeah, no, there that was a real high point. I mean, it didn't it didn't last very long, but uh, that's an experience I'll never forget the rest of my life. And all along the way, it seems like there was nothing holding you back. You were recruited to go on all these different teams. Lance Armstrong brought you on to the U.S. Post Office team. I mean, when Lance Armstrong first contacted you to be on his team, what were you thinking? Well, I was excited. I mean, at at that point, I had raced on a couple uh, smaller, just U.S.-based teams, and obviously the best bicycle racing is in Europe. It's more cultural thing there, but I mean, there's plenty of good races here, but um, the real... You know the real talented riders and the real hard races are in Europe. So when uh, the Postal Service contacted me and said they had a spot for me, I was, I was ecstatic. I mean, they had won the Tour de France the previous three years at that point already, and uh, I mean that was like the Yankees. That's the team you wanted to be on. Is a team considered to win when one of the members wins? Is that how how it works? Yeah. So it's not really. Yeah, it's not a team sport in the sense that the team wins. I mean, you have a leader of the team, and that individual wins, but yet you have you know eight other guys on the team at any given race um where those guys sacrifice themselves and to help the leader and so there's it's different dynamic than how do they than typical sac- team sports how do they sacrifice themselves well there's drafting and and so um that's that's a huge part of it but there's also in everybody's probably seen at least clips of bicycle racing where the riders ride together very very close to each other in a group and so the the, the safest place to be is near the front of that group um, and so in order to stay at the front of that group without spending too much energy, you don't want to be going back 
to the cars that are following for water or food or things like that. So you have a, you have a team that helps you and takes care of you until the critical points in the race where, you, I mean, generally by the time you're in a race, you, you know who the strongest guy is on the team anyway from training and that's who the leader is. And so, uh, or in the case of the postal service, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously it was, it was Armstrong because he had won the, won the tour the previous three years. And so, so yeah, the team, the team, you know, gets you refreshment or, or, if you have a flat tire, they'll give you their bike so you don't have to wait too long for the car to get there. There's all, all kinds of moving parts in a bike race. But the main thing is that you have a couple guys around you to keep you from riding in the wind, <clears throat> to use a term that they use in cycling. Um, so they'll just ride in front of you if you're at the very front of the race. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, look, it's an interesting sport. And it's for most Americans that haven't really done it, there's probably some nuances that they miss about the tactics and things like that. But once you've done it, it's pretty easy to understand why the strategies work the way they do. And then, so you, you were recruited on the team and you start training with Lance Armstrong. You spent a lot of time with him. At that point, what did you learn from him in terms of peak performance in racing? You know, at that point, I had been racing long enough and I, I had a good sense of what the training was that was necessary. But I mean, to the guy's credit, he can pedal a bike hard. He was a good leader. Like he, he would have a plan and he would execute on it. And, and you know, I, I learned a lot about, well, just the way we approach the Tour de France, it's much, much more difficult than other races. I mean, there isn't anything that compares to it really because everybody is in their best shape. Everybody in that race is, has focused on that for the year with their training, right? The intensity of it is is much, much higher. And, and there's so much more happening. There's so many people and press and there's a helicopters flying over you and there's cars. I mean, it's just, it's chaos, right? I mean, you're just exhausted. When that, the first year you do that race, you don't have any idea how somebody could possibly win it. It's very, very difficult. I mean, the first year I did it, I was fortunate to be on the team with Armstrong because we had a purpose, stay in the front and take care of Lance and you're going to pull on this section. You're going to do the work here or there. And so, you, you know, I watched these other guys on other teams who, they may have had a leader that crashed out or just didn't have a great race or whatever. And by the end of the, by the end of the Tour de France, they just have like, you can just see it on their face. They're, they're only finishing for the sake of saying they finished. They have nothing, <laughs> nothing to work for, no reason to be there. Right. They don't, they're so not is that, like, it's that like <clears throat> almost emotionally exhausted. Just like exhausted. Yeah. I'm just, I mean, it's, it's every, three it's weeks, just 2200 miles and very little sleep. And just, I mean, even between the beginning and the finish, of, of a given stage, okay, you have the race, but then the rest of the time you're driving from a hotel to the start or you're driving to, to a hotel after the finish and they're often dispersed pretty far because you're talking about several thousand people operating this race as it moves. And, and so, so, so what nuance is there, like just in terms of like in between the different stages of the race, like where did you see uh, Lance coming through as a leader? You said, you said he was a good well, leader. Well, so yeah, so this, this is what I was saying that w the benefit to me from having been on that team for right, right from the first time I did it was I had, I had something to stay focused on. So I'd stay in the front. I could learn the tactics. You have, you have guys in the race, half the race by the, by the third week where they're just riding their bike. They're not learning anything. They're not getting in better shape even. They're just suffering and trying trying to get through it so i i was as tired as those guys but i had a reason to stay in the front and a reason to keep trying and so once you're there and you're on a team that wins it it becomes more manageable or more it, it becomes easier to just envision yourself doing it again or or trying to win it or being in the front it's just there's uh, there's so many things happening that you need you just need to do it multiple times before you before you know what you're doing and so i was lucky to be on a team that was winning each time because then you you learn how to win and so, okay, so so is that kind of like a motivating force or are there other motivations? Was, was Lance motivating? Well, yeah, so 
absolutely it builds on itself and and I saw it in the years that I was there I mean I got there after he'd already won three so the the attitude was we came here to win and we, and you behave that way and it's in your mind and you I mean people like to say that you know a certain percentage of sports is mental and I like it I don't really see it that way it's not a percentage of it but it's it's a link in the chain right and so you have if you've got a group of guys that believe you can win and they and they behave that way you have a huge advantage over the other guys who are just hoping to do well or maybe they can win. I mean, we showed up there with the plan to win and that was it. There was no, there, there wasn't any other acceptable outcome. And so right from the start, we have an advantage because we behave that way, right? We, we stay in the front. We, it takes a little more energy, but, it, but because you have this optimistic approach to it, the, that extra energy is offset by just the fact that you're, you have a purpose. And when you were later on teams that hadn't won before, and you were the strong guy, and that you were the leader of the team. Like uh, Phonic was the the team that you that you won with, right? Yeah. Um, uh, what what motivate what enabled you to motivate them, given that they hadn't won before? Because it seems it seems like I, I see what you're saying. Mental is just a link on the chain, but it seems like that really is the crucial difference between a winning team and a losing team is that they have some kind of extra motivation that keeps all the team members going for the leader. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, yeah, it's so. It is a huge part of it, um, and so my my approach to it was a little different than Lance's. And, and Lance, just by virtue of the fact that he already won three tours by the time I got there, he didn't really have to say or do anything motivating. We just he behaved in the sense that, like, look, we're going to go win this thing. We don't. This is our plan. I mean, you might say it, but you don't have to tell people motivate people. Or by this time, these are professionals, right? They like a, a pep talk isn't going to help them. They they already know what to right. do. And so if they're if they're in the right frame of mind and they believe you can win, then they're going to do the right thing and. It doesn't always go perfectly, and you have to adjust along the way. But um, starting out with that, with that vision, is is a huge advantage. And so, by the time I, you know, when I went to the Phonak team, um, the first year I, after I left uh, the Postal Service team uh, and joined Phonak, I, I finished. I think I finished ninth that year in the tour. Um, but the following year, in the in the races leading up to the Tour de France, I had won quite a few other big races. Uh, there's a tour of California that's about ten days long, and then there was there's. Uh, Paris Nice, which is a eight day stage race in in the spring in France, and I'd won both of those. Um, and so, why don't they have a race across America race? <laughs> they do actually. Uh, it's uh, but it's a whole different format. It's actually called the Race Across America. A buddy of mine, Dave Zabriskie, did it with a team. But that that thing doesn't have stages. Like you just start and then you ride twenty six hundred miles or whatever it is from San Diego to I think it's Atlantic City where they finish. But that's a whole different format, right? The Tour de France, you have. Each day you have a, a fixed amount of of distance you have to race, so there's a start and finish line each day. Whereas that race across America is <laughs> just a nonstop ride, and there's guys that do it in like seven or eight days. It's pretty impressive, but I don't want any part of that. Mm-hmm. But but anyway, yeah. So we, we had this. That was the same group of guys that were racing those races with me, and so we had this sense that like we can do it. It wasn't we we weren't the underdogs. We were, it was pretty well accepted that we were one of the contenders for winning the Tour de France. So we, we had a good, I mean, there's a lot of things happening, right? And simply showing up and saying you're going to win is probably not enough. You have to demonstrate that you can, that you can win big races before that. But So, so you, had, you had had a good year. Yeah, so, yeah. So all your team was like, okay, we have, and Lance wasn't in that year, right? Like right, that was the first year he had retired, yeah. So, so you were like, and you had, you, you, it's almost like kind of a quasi-royalty you had been on. The, the winning team with him many times. So now your team was like, okay, here's a winner. He's worked with Lance, who's no longer playing. We've got, we've got the chance. This is our shot. So that was like a motivating factor. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, it, so it, it's an interesting sport because you, you don't have a lot of really, as, as hard as it is, and, as, and everyone, everyone that ever talks about it says, you know, it's the most painful thing. It's, it's not really pain, it's more just discomfort. It, it's difficult, it's a difficult sport, right? But you don't, for whatever reason, you don't have a lot of strong personalities like you see in, in American team sports. You, it's, I don't know, it's, it's more of, a, of an individual sport, but you're around other guys and you have dynamics where you have to help them, but you don't really feel like, yeah, I, I don't really know how to explain it, but. Um, kind of makes you think of like NASCAR team racing. Yeah, where like it's like everybody's that. there to support the, the the driver, right? And then he gets all the he gets all the the glory at the end of it. But so my point was, in the tour, because Lance had been so dominant for I mean, in that team for seven years straight, pretty much everybody that was racing the following year is still more or less the same group of guys, right? And there might be some some new guys in the in the peloton, but for the most part, it's guys that had been there for those seven years, or at least some of them. And so there was a, a kind of a vacuum there. Like nobody, there there were no real leaders on any of their teams, and nobody really wanted to try to take control control of the race. And so, I mean, I had had a good year up until that point, so I figured let's just do what they did and just behave as though we're going to win. Let's go and and uh, just assume that position since no one else seems to want to take it. The race was kind of chaotic up until that point. It seems like that's a very interesting thing, though. Thing though, like behave as if we're going to win. Like that applies to many areas of life as well. Like, oh, absolutely, yeah. And it's a whole mindset. Uh, like, like you, you had reasons to justify that, but could couldn't the other teams have also said, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go in and behave as if we're going to win"? Like, what does it mean to behave as if you're gonna, going to win? Yeah, I mean, everything you do, you, you show up with your team and you start at the front and you say, "Look, we're gonna stay at the front. We're gonna stay. We're not gonna take any risks. We're gonna we're, we're gonna fight for every inch of space because the whole thing is it's really a fight for for space in the peloton and and." Yeah, I mean these are subtle things, and it probably doesn't look that way from the outside. But there's there are teams there that have it in their mind that I'm going to go win and I'm going to behave that way, and then there are a bunch of other teams that don't. I mean, honestly, there's probably in a given year only three or four guys that are that are capable of winning the thing outright. And so then, what separates those is sometimes just luck. I mean, you can have bad luck and or a bad day or any. I mean, if you have just in life in general, in three weeks, you have a couple of rough days. That's just how it goes, right? Some days are better than others. And, and the same thing happens in a race. And so those that can be, I mean, it exaggerates the outcome of the race because if you're not completely focused on what you're doing and you get distracted, you, I mean, you, your race could be over. You could get, I mean, you, you'd be in a crash or, or hit a tree and that's the end of it. Um, so yeah, when, there, all these things are, are subtle, but the, a lot of it is just a mindset and say, okay, we're we're going to win. We're going to behave that way. We're never going to. We're not going to. We're not going to get distracted. We're not going to relax at all for three weeks. This is it. This is what we're going to do. And yeah, it, it does apply to everything else in life as well, except that it's because here you have a start and a finish. It's easier to just compartmentalize it and say, okay, we got these three weeks. This is all we're going to care about and all we're going to do. And it's it's a strange experience because you. <laughs> I mean, like you lose track of what's happening in the world. That you're so con- consumed by what's happening around you, and there's so many things to manage. You don't, you have no idea what's going on in the rest of the planet. I mean, you don't find right. Like you're, yeah. you're trying to be a peak performer, the best in the world right, yeah. at something at the peak uh, race of the world. Right. Absolutely. There would be no reason to look like no, no, the outside you're not world. looking around. <laughs> it's like, oh, now we're gonna watch like a sitcom. Yeah. No. This is like you. Know, there's just no. If if you really want to win that race, you have to behave that way, and you there's no time for distractions. Every everything you do is to is to calculate what you're going to do next to make your odds the best. 
the best chance of winning. So I want to, um, of course, talk about all the doping stuff and the effect it's had on the, on the sport and on you uh, specifically and on Lance specifically. But outside of that, what do you think made Lance Armstrong such a strong winner for so many years in a row outside of the doping? Well, look, I mean, he was at least among the best athletes there, probably the best athlete. And in any case, he was he was a better leader. He was better. He was better at just taking control of the race and deciding when he wanted to go and gain time. He wanted to go attack. He he made decisions on his own. And and the other guys during that time period, uh, there were a couple guys that probably were as talented as him. They just they didn't have the same personality. They didn't have the same. I mean, this the German guy Jan Ulrich was really the main the main competition for Lance. He had some issues throughout those years, but he just I mean. If you looked at the guy and you, you saw him race a bike, you'd say he he has everything Lance Armstrong has, but he just didn't have the he didn't have the mental approach and he didn't care as much. I mean, Lance cared. Lance was obsessed. He had he had to win. Winning that thing seven times was incredible. I'll, I'll say that. So, so what's the mental approach like? What? How can someone kind of up their mental game? Well, he 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 was good about you know staying focused, not just in the race, but the whole year. Like he he lived his life around that race, so everything he did, whether it was in January or in June the month before, was to try to arrange everything so that he would be in his peak performance in, in July. And he, and he would work with the team members. Like you and him trained individually, one-on-one together. Right? Yeah, we at, did. At different points. Yeah. And so what did you learn during those periods that you maybe you didn't know before? Like what did he teach you? Well, so... It, uh, by that time I got there, it wasn't so much that I needed to learn about the the specifics of training. It was more like strategic. Every, or no, it's not so much that every every year that you race your bike up until you you get to your absolute peak, you you continue to improve. And the only way to continue to improve is to train harder and more. And so he had done the Tour de France and won it three times when I had showed up there. And so he was he was a better athlete than me at that point. And so just training with him because he could train so much harder made made me better. I mean that really was. The, the biggest benefit. So, for, so it's sort of like being, being, seeing how he did and wanting to be, and, and you're obviously a competitive person, kind of brought your game up. Being yeah, around yeah, yeah. good people brought you, made you better. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people prefer to race more because the races are very intense, right? Um, but it's more dangerous. And Lance had a, had a strategy of he raced less than some of the other guys and he liked to train hard on his own, which he could, you could simulate a race, but you could also do very specific amounts of of effort on a given climb or something like that. In a race, the rest of the people around you dictate the, the effort, right? So he liked it more structured like that. I honestly, I was sort of indifferent. I I, I liked racing, and so for me, that was as that, that was as good as as training um, on our own. But but when I was training with him, he yeah he was he was focused on what he was doing. And there was no there were no jokes like we're this is a business we're gonna. We're going to train and we're going to go win. And so, so uh, now I'm going to veer a little into the uh, doping. But, but first, I kind of want to ask like broader questions, which is that it seems like the entire sport of cycling, and actually just like many sports, but I'll, at first I'll stick to cycling, seems like since the 1800s, there's been doping. <laughs> like, uh, like people would admit, and, and it wasn't illegal in cycling until 1965, but people would admit even in like the 1880s, 1890s, uh, right after winning a race, like, oh yeah, we, we took cocaine, we took strychnine, we did all these things and took all these amphetamines. People died from taking amphetamine, too many amphetamines, you know, before races. Uh, like all along, the, the, the history of cycling is combined with the history of 
um, I don't know if you call them performance enhancing drugs, but you know, drug use to 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 perform better. Yeah, so cycling's kind of I, I I don't you know that's the only professional sport I've ever been in at at the highest level. So those only one I really have a reference about. But I mean, it, it, people have been taking drugs in cycling for a long time, and and it's part of the it's part of the culture of the whole thing. This, the, these, these old Belgian guys that used to be bike racers themselves, they run a lot of the teams or French guys. I mean, this, the whole thing is, it's hard for, for Americans to see it for what it is because from the point of view of Americans watching, it's like, oh, that's a healthy thing to do. It's a, it's an endurance sport. It's, it's exercise, but it's not, it's not that at all. It's, I mean, first of all, it's dangerous, right? I mean, people die in that, in that race every other year, either a spectator or a rider. People die in cycling all the time. It's very, very dangerous. Even like, how do they die? crash and you land on your head. I mean, the way you're mm. sitting on a bicycle, if you hit something, you're going to land on your head. And mm. yeah, I've known multiple professional cyclists that have died in races. Um, but yeah, where was I going with that? I forget so, what I was so, saying. So, the, so even without the doping, there's it's a dangerous right, sport. Yeah, so, so th- that's the point, right? So you have a group of people who are already have a different... Uh, approach to risk analysis and <laughs> than than an ordinary person, right? Because you're out there, they're risking their life on a bicycle, which most people would say is is foolish. So when when people look at it and they analyze, well, those guys are taking drugs. Why would they do that? This is supposed to be a healthy thing. It's it's not that at all. It's, it's at the highest level. It's a, it's a war. I mean, that's it. They're that's how they see it. There aren't right, there aren't any rules. And your body, it's war. There's risk. And your body's sort of a machine, and a machine can be, you know, manipulated. Yeah, yeah, manipulated and programmed and heightened. And so that's what I always wonder. And like now, of course, there's there's stuff going on in the MMA with with doping. There's new stuff about uh, Russia and and different Olymp. You know, the most recent Olympics where there was uh, heavy doping. And I guess part of the challenge of taking performance enhancing drugs is the doctors develop drugs that can't be detected from the normal means. Or find, find, find ways to do it that haven't yet been made illegal. So there's always kind of, it's, a, it's sort of this race between the doping and coming up with uh, ways to uh, detect the doping and then coming up with ways to avoid the detection. So there's like this scientific battle that's happening in the background. And 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 it's happening in every sport, really. Like it's happening in football, baseball. There's, there's scandals everywhere. My my basic question is: before we get into the, the the facts of what happened, is what's wrong with it? So like right now, we give our kids any kid that raises their hand and says they have ADD, you give them Adderall. Are they are they doping to to pass their science tests? Like you know, and and these drugs are are dangerous drugs. They might be more dangerous than the drugs that, that world champion cyclers take, for all we know. Well, for sure they are. I mean, that's not to say that the cyclists don't also take Adderall, but but they, in general, they have a doctor around. They, they'll all deny it, but the doc, there's there are doctors around that are generally watching over these people, so they're not just taking random amounts of something, right? Because on top of what you, you said earlier, they, they're also trying to avoid the detection by the test, so they typically have to take low doses of it. So, the, I mean, the health risks of... of racing your bike are so much greater than anything you might add by by adding performance enhancing drugs that it's not that's not a consideration at all the issue is well i mean look and I, i've i've hesitated to say this i said it once or twice before in, in public and i got kind of crucified for it but at the end of the day it's all fine and good to believe that you know these that the sports should be fair and that i mean first of all sports aren't fair somebody's born inherently better than the other guy that's the whole point of the game right so people are going to try to find ways to either close that spread or or beat the other guys or or whatever 
And there's there's simply no way to stop it. And they, they need to just allow it. And either if they're really concerned about health, they can monitor it. But the fact of the matter is nobody nobody's dying from this stuff in, in sports events and they can't stop it. And right now it's it's worse. It's doing more harm to, to kids who are, are looking at, at trying to become an athlete than than if you just were honest with them and say, look, this if that's what you aspire to be, here's what you're going to face. Instead, they're just lying. We have the anti-doping associations. They're 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 just a facade and they're a PR side of the Olympic Committee, and they want to sell the Olympics. That's a huge money machine. It's a huge corrupt machine, right? It's a huge fraud. It's a lot like FIFA. It's just it's run by old corrupt white men, and they like the idea that they can make it look as though this is fair and this is clean, and we have all these people competing, and it's like everything's wonderful and everyone gets a hug at the end. But that's all a lie. It's all about the billions of dollars from television revenue, and they know that they're not stopping it. They know their tests don't work. They know that. And, and this is the saddest part for me. I, I watch the tour from time to time, and I know exactly what's going on. And it's exactly the same as when I was racing. And so what, what bothers me about those agencies is they, won't, they just won't be honest and won't face the truth that taking me down and taking Lance Armstrong down did absolutely nothing. It was an utter failure. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Ugh, this happens every time in every business I've ever started or been involved with. Racing against the clock to wrap up projects, prepping for meetings later in the afternoon, all the while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software to help the self-employed. It's redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organize, and get paid quickly. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four times faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial at freshbooks.com James and enter the James Altucher Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's freshbooks.com slash James. I mean, I think I, I read somewhere that you'd have to go, if you were to list the uh, top bicyclists in the world, you'd have to go below number 20 to find someone who's probably not Yeah, but even doping. once you get there, that's the only, they're not doping simply because nobody's bothering to test them down there. Right, so. <laughs> and, they're, and they're not making any money. Like the well, the benefit of doping still is doping. not going to help yeah, them. It, they're... There's there are very few people in cycling that are not doping to this day, and 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 how do they again? How do they do it now that they're not detected? Like, what are some ways? And and again, we're, we're now we're speaking broadly. We're going to get into the specifics. One of the specifics is is that after you won the Tour de France, uh, it, the title was taken away from you because of uh, uh, doping. And then, of course, there's the the massive revelations that that you emailed to the New York Times about you know kind of. Revealing all the doping use in the industry, including Lance Armstrong, uh, you know, and then later on, there's all the 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 government case about it, and you know, Lance Armstrong admitting it finally. And I mean, you really kind of changed the entire sport single handedly, um, which we'll get into. But uh, how does somebody? Why would somebody take it now with such a risk of detection? Or, or how so do that, you avoid so detection? So that's the, that's the thing is their 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 tests really don't work. I mean, and and the 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 amount of new and much more effective uh, drugs, for lack of a better word. I mean, peptides are probably the the best thing that that they've got going right now because they, well, like human growth hormone is is a protein, right? And peptides are there are there are 
other peptide hormones that are, you know, amino acids chained together and they're often, they're, they're, they're very, very small and they have a very, very short half-life, but they have a very specific effect on, on your body in, in the sense that they can be designed to increase mitochondria in your muscles or increase just, just about any kind of specific strength or, or issue you want to address without any other side effects. And there, there are no tests for them. They, they mm-hmm. don't exist. Uh, and these things are not expensive. And and uh, moreover, the EPO test is still so it's so far from being sensitive enough that it's uh, almost of no use. I mean, is that why you were willing to um, allow the there was there was you know when there was one test of you 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 didn't want them to use the primary test. You said why don't you just use the backup test and you know taking the risk that. You know, you knew the backup test would, could be just as bad, but you were willing to take the risk that they would the, somehow their detection would just not work. Yeah, they're I mean, they're just the, the the they just for whatever reason the, the Olympic Committee has enough money to to do real studies and create real tests, but they just simply don't do it because I guess because they don't want to. And at the end of the day, I think even if they had tests at work, you can't test everybody all the time or tell people they have to they have to disclose where they are twenty four seven so you can test them at random times. I mean the to get away with these drugs takes very little effort. Someone here and there might get caught, but frankly, their their stated false positive rate for their tests across the board is about one percent, and that's how many people they catch. So that it's unknowable if they ever catch anybody for, for the right reason. Half the time, it's probably or or all of the time, arguably all of the time, all of the test results they get are just false positive because they don't know what they're doing or made a mistake or right, whatever and, else. And, and to your point, to your point. There's always new uh, developments happening, and also if you if the, if the half life can be controlled of these performance enhancing drugs, you could take something right before a race. By the time the race is over, it's not in your system anymore. You can't take a test. Yeah, there's, I mean that that's what it comes down to, and that's why even though they you know you'll see reports about how they test for growth hormone in the NFL that they simply it, there may have been one or two so called positive tests for growth hormone. But the the half life of growth hormone is minutes, and so you'd have to be you'd have to be tested within an hour of having used it, and and then you still get the same effect for weeks and months afterwards after using it. So it's, it's is that right? So I can take like a human growth hormone, and it won't be in my system for testing. Like let's say an hour later, but I'd still feel strong for months. Yes, the the effects of it are are it's a pretty high level hormone, so it's got all these it's got a cascading set of effects that are that make you stronger and more aggressive and and yeah, it does all kinds of things for athletes and and for for other people too. I mean, it does. I'm not trying to sell this stuff, but it, it's it's very good stuff. Um, <laughs> like, would you like but, just if you for daily life? Would you take what would you take now for daily life to enhance your life? Well, I mean, I I, I know this has nothing to do with anything. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer marijuana at the moment, but no, honestly, the times I use growth hormone, it's it's very very effective for for athletes, and it's practically impossible to catch someone using it. I mean, it's as as a practical matter, there's no sense in even trying because they're so far behind. Because if they ever do figure out a test for that, which it doesn't look promising, then you still have hundreds and hundreds of other peptides that are that are analogs of that that. You'd have to test for each one specifically. It's that, here's I think most people vi- visualize it wrong. Let's say you're if you give a urine sample, they don't put it in a in a machine and it comes out and says this is what's in it. They have to specifically test in a different way using different chemistry or different analytics for each specific thing they're trying to find. Right? It's it's not a, like it's not like you'd say okay here's there's three things in here 
because that's what the machine told us. You have to say, this is what we're testing for. And so they don't even, first of all, they don't even know half the things that they should be testing for because they're all new. And these peptides can be can be altered in limitless ways. And on top of that, they've got they've got the half-life issue. And so what, what they try to do is they say, look, okay, here's what we think these guys are using. They have a, li- they have a list of the banned substances. It's like 3,000 things. Half of them are of no use. But they don't test for all of those all the time because it's expensive. So they say, okay, in this sport, they're more likely to be using EPO. We'll test for EPO. That's one specific test. So each one adds cost on top of it, right? Um, and so when I think people misunderstand the whole... They've done a good job of selling this anti-doping you know, strategy that they have but they have done just an absolute abysmal job of, of following through on anything. And so, you know, you said earlier that I, I changed the sport. I, I would wager that I didn't really change anything. I mean, from what I see, that, and that's what makes me sad about the whole thing. You know, in hindsight, I honestly thought at some point, okay, look, maybe I'm wrong. I'll just tell the truth and, and these guys are right and they'll, they'll fix it. And they didn't, they didn't I mean, I mean, I guess the way you changed it though is like, just from a historical perspective, and I don't know, I don't know how, I mean, I guess the problem is, is that like you say, people view all these sports as clean, healthy, like, oh, we're going to play sports. We're going to teach our kids sports. And so kids view everybody as role models. And I guess the 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 idea of, an, of having anti-doping laws is that kids are looking at these sports heroes as, as idols and want to emulate them. And if everybody across every sport is taking performance han- enhancing drugs, What's the effect on children? And so I wonder if that's the main reason for all of this. Well, that's what, so that's what they say. But I, I, I would, I take the position that you're harming those kids more by lying to them and saying those people did that naturally. There, for, there's several outcomes there. A kid that really wants to try to do it is going to find out the hard way that he can't do it naturally and is either going to get really depressed and think he's a loser or he's going to have to face the fact that if he wants to be some someone like he aspires to be and he's already spent 10 years or 8 years training to get there it's a little bit late to tell him well now now we're going to tell you that this is what you actually have to do you've already wasted all that time no nobody's going to say no at that point i think i'm, I'm in fact i'm certain that they're looking at it all wrong and and the kids are being harmed more by the olympic committee saying this is this is about fairness and about honesty when they know they know it Believe me, make no mistake. They, these guys running this thing, they know it, and they, and, so, and they they'd like to say we're protecting the kids, but they're they're the ones harming the kids. And when you when you first were were told, uh, I mean, may, maybe it was a, a not just a, a black and white thing. Maybe there's a gray area. But when you were first told, okay, now uh, Floyd, you've got to take this shot or do this thing. What, did it scare you? Were you like, uh oh, now I'm and now I'm entering into the dark side? <laughs> I mean, not really. And that's the other thing is everyone visualizes this. And, and yeah, to some extent, it was kind of dramatic. Like doing a blood transfusion on yourself is fairly visually traumatic. Um, but the but things like testosterone or, or even, even growth hormone and peptides like that. I mean, testosterone uses a lotion. It doesn't feel like you're even doing anything wrong. Just put a lotion on your arm. Um, growth hormone and those peptides, they're, they're water-soluble and you use a, a tiny little insulin syringe. I mean, we're talking like minuscule amounts of, of product in, for any given product that you're using. And it doesn't, I mean, apart from the just, I, I don't know, the, the, the yeah, there's some, there's, for me, there was some frustration, like, well, okay, this is what it's come to. But at, at, by that time I had accepted that there was nothing I could do about it. I, I, could, I couldn't change it, right? If I said- right, Like this was your profession and yeah. now you were taking the next step. Well, and, and, and not only that, 
I mean, I wasn't in a position to do anything about it. So I had two choices and they were very, very clear. I either don't get to race my bike and win the Tour de France or I face the facts and do it. There is no middle ground where people like to say, well, why didn't you just, you know, blow the whistle on the whole thing in the beginning? Well, I, first of all, I couldn't have. No one knew who I was and no one would have cared. And there, it would have done absolutely nothing to fix it. I would have just been, it would have been hearsay, right? The only reason people listened was because I had won the Tour de France and they already had heard about the positive test and they wanted to hear the story. I think people sort of, in their probably in their heart, they know what professional athletes do. They just like the idea that they'll tell themselves it's clean. And that's, that's fine if that's how they want to approach it. But my point is that back then, I, I didn't, my choices were, were simple. I either quit or make this decision and go do what, what we have to do, what everybody's doing, and that's it. So. So, so you won the Tour de France in 2006, and what happened like the first time, uh-oh, they, this might not go as I planned? <laughs> Like, where were you? What did you hear? Who called you? Yeah, so, I mean, I got a, a phone call from um, one of the, the managers of the team and just said, Floyd, we got a problem. And I was like, oh, man. I, I knew what he meant because there would be no reason. It was just three days after the Tour de France. No reason to call me. And we were at a hotel, and so he said, I'll, I'll go up and talk to you. And he was like, he was white. <laughs> he, was, he was traumatized. And I was like, okay, well, I don't, I mean, I have no idea how we're supposed to deal with this. I don't. I mean, <clears throat> the team was in on it. The team was financing the doping program, but of course they fired me and they turn on me and say, oh, we didn't know anything about it. So I was left to just deal with it on my own. And I just was hopelessly unprepared. I mean, at, at that point I had never really, apart from racing with Lance, I didn't, I didn't have any real significant level of fame that I had to deal with, even in a positive way. So I, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a PR person. I didn't have anything. Lance had all of that. So I think given a scenario where that happened to him, he would have had a plan, but I was never allowed enough time in that in that position to even surround myself with the people I would have needed, even if it had gone well, right? It just, it, it all happened really quickly. And so, yeah, I didn't. I mean, so, so then it happens, you're stripped of the title. Um, I mean, what, obviously it's not a happy moment and, and it's a cliche to say it's a depressing moment. Like, but what was your kind of just visceral reaction? Like what happened next? Yeah, I mean, I just, <clears throat> I at, around that time, a couple of weeks after that, I also had to have my hip replaced because it was in really bad shape at that point. And so, I um, I, I was given you know narcotics to deal with my hip pain, and so I basically got hooked on those for a couple of years. That helped me just deal with it. I mean, I, I I'm not trying to promote them, but like in, in in some crazy way that just helped me to manage it because I could just check out. I didn't know what to do. I didn't. I was used to living my life where, okay, I have a goal, I have something I have to accomplish, here's what I'm going to do to get there. And you're making an income from it. Yeah, but here, there was nothing happening. It was like a legal case that went on forever and there would be weeks at a time where there was nothing to do and I no longer really enjoyed riding my bike because well, I just, all of a sudden, it had this terrible association with it. So I just replaced it with alcohol and pills and yeah, I mean, I'm still alive, so that part's good, but... <laughs> how, did you, um, how did you uh begin to come back from that? Like, what, was there a... I mean, again, it's a cliche to say you hit rock bottom because often people hit rock bottom and there's still plenty of room to fall below that. Um, how did you start to kind of turn the ship around? I don't, there was So there wasn't really a, a point that I would point at and say it turned around. It was more uh, just, and this is, this is totally cliche, but there was time, like I just needed time. And, and also there was time for me and for me to accept what was happening in my new place in life and accept that I wasn't going to race bikes anymore. Because you've been doing it like twenty years. Yeah, and that's as, all as I love. had done. Yeah, 
what but then were you there was doing also a living in this time like between t- 2006 and 2010 what how did you make money well for a long time i mean i did some appearances for the the company that did my hip smith and nephew made my hip prosthetic and so i did some stuff for them and there were things here and there that i could do like i, I didn't have a consistent job of any kind of but there were still things within cycling or related to that that i could do appearances and things like that but um yeah, I mean, honestly, it was just time. And, and there's also time for other people to actually get some context. Some, and, and I think that helped because people I, that I talk to now have a much better understanding of... Back then, it was like, okay, Floyd wanted to be like Lance, so he took drugs and he won. And, and But there was this huge elephant in the room like, oh, so you really think Lance didn't take any? But nobody wanted to address it. Nobody would say anything. And the press were... I mean, the press, just like they are manipulated by you know, the big sponsors of the NFL, ESPN's never going to write a scandalous story about the NFL unless it's something that they know they they can get away with without having their pass revoked to the games, right? Um, and to some extent, because Lance was sponsored by Nike and he had this whole cancer foundation, he was sort of protected. The press didn't, apart from a few small things here and there, they just didn't want to write what the obvious was. And so initially I took a real, real abuse, um, you know, and it's, I've, I've seen it happen to other people since then and I... It, it's a small category of people that can actually relate to it, but that kind of public shaming is very, very painful. I mean, if you're, unless you're a sociopath and have no, no empathy of any kind, that's going to affect you. Like in terms of public shaming, so people knew you, who you were. They they associated you with this, you know, horrible scandal in, in sporting that they that they uh, didn't associate other people with. Like, what was the worst that you encountered? Well, so it's I, I didn't mean it in that sense. It was more like as this happened, it was sort of the beginning of everybody having a blog and everybody having a comment section and all of their things. And and when you have nothing to do and you're, and you're obsessed with managing this kind of crisis, it's really easy to become obsessed with reading all these things. And I've sure. learned, I've learned not to because number one, I can't even have a dialogue with these people. I don't know who they are. So there's no and point. They don't want to have a dialogue with you. No, they, they just, just want to be, be belligerent. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't, it's it becomes very very difficult to tell what percentage of the population they represent because they're the only ones talking. So, but it feels like that's what everyone thinks, and so right. It's the it's the um, the vocal minority tends to be the negative people. Yeah, and you and, don't know how big or small they are. You don't know who they are. They're obviously you, you could you only feed them when you engage them. So they're not. Then that be makes nice it worse because yeah. then you just get more frustrated, and yeah. then you, all you did was validate their opinion. But, and the other thing is. If a thousand people are are criticizing you in some way or other, one or two of them are going to hit the right buttons. From oh yeah, childhood they're, no, they're good crazy. at it. They're good at it. <laughs> <Yeah>. These people. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, some of them are quite impressive. Their talent for actually aggravating somebody that they have no real interest in, other than they just want to be an asshole, right? Yeah. But yeah, so when I when I said public shaming, that was sort of the the nature of it that I experienced. I mean, it would it got worse over time. Right now, you have Twitter and Instagram. There's all these other things, but back then, it was just like the comment section or the or the whatever. The, each site would have their place where people could interact. And it for a, for a while, I I like I knew I shouldn't be reading it, but I couldn't help it. It's yeah. compelling for some reason. Like there's something. <laughs> it's hard to turn away, even though it hurts, and you're and you're mad for whatever reason. You think maybe if I if I read this long enough, I'll understand what their point of view is, and I can say something. But you can't debate with these people. But I've then, given but, up. But then finally, what you did was you took back your own voice, rather than responding to everyone else. You kind of spoke, and you sent these emails out, which kind of described the history of your career, including all the people who uh, 
uh, were doping, including Lance Armstrong and how they did it and when they did it and why they did it and what kind of triggered you to do that? Well, I, you know, initially, and it's easy to sit and say, this is what I should have done initially. But I mean, I should have just been honest to start with. Probably shouldn't have taken drugs in the first place. You can keep going back and say, I shouldn't have done this or I shouldn't have done that. But at that point in my life, I, I mean, I was 30 years old and I wanted to keep racing. And, you know, people race their bike till they're 35, sometimes 40. I was in the peak of my career. And there there simply was not an option where, and it should be obvious now, right, what, what I was experiencing because we saw what happened when I actually told the truth. It took four or five years for anyone to even acknowledge it. I just got abused through that whole time, right? So if I had come clean then, I would have ensured that I never raced my bike again. That was one choice. Or if I lie and try to defend it, maybe I can come back and race again, depending on what some people had the sanctions are. Yeah, yeah, it happens all the time in cycling. Um, And it didn't work out that way because I guess in in I was living in and I didn't see it from the outside. But it was too it was too big of a scandal for the Tour de France to want that to come come back. Like there was no way I was ever going to race again. But I still had hope and I still wanted to race. I didn't want to give up on that. And so the alternative, I mean, the alternative to just telling the truth and ensuring that I never race again was to just say I never did it and, and lie about it. And people are going to hold it against me and they still do. And I, that's, they have every right to, but um, at some point I just decided, look, I, I don't, I would go out in public and people would always, they would say, Oh, I'm sorry about what happened to you. We don't think you cheated. And I would just be like, man, I wish, I wish I could just tell the whole story, but there was never a way to do it in, in any context other than finally I just got frustrated and said, I'll just write it down. Here's what happened. You can just do what you want because I've now been, humiliated beyond the point of, of any more damage and I, I don't really care anymore. So here, here's what happened. You, you People on the internet, you have all these strong opinions. If you can see it for what it really is, you can either change your mind or you can just, you can just go on about your, you know, your disparagement. But um, it was, some of it was self-centered because I was, I just wanted to feel better about it. I didn't want to face people and say, I, I didn't know what to say. It was it was it was exhausting, is what it was. So so kind of kind of a uh, a little bit of it is is you were redefining the word cheating in the sense that you people were saying, oh, we believe you, you didn't cheat, and you 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 felt at the time you weren't cheating because everybody was doing it. So that's another way to define cheating. It's like, look, the entire industry is lying to you, and I'm just a part of that industry. So that's kind of what you were saying in your emails. A little bit. It seemed like a little bit of the point of it was. Well, so I tried to be matter of fact in the emails and just say, just state what happened rather than say, here's how you should view it about cheat. People have different opinions about cheating, and I honestly don't really even know what to think. If everybody's doing it as cheating, I don't know. There's a set of rules. I know that one thing for sure. We lived in in a in a in a, a compartmentalized culture that. We, we were selling something to the public and saying this is what it is. But within that culture, everybody, whether they, they say they doped or didn't dope, or even if they didn't, everybody knew who was doing what, when, and how. Everybody. And it was just an, a set of unspoken rules. And so those are still rules. And, and you know, it's people on the outside can make a judgment. But what happened within there, everybody accepted it. And you can you see what their response is. The only time they actually turn on people is when those people try to actually expose the truth. So like 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 given that everybody knew, how come like all the teams that were perpetual losers in the Tour de France, how come they didn't just say, oh, the only reason Lance Armstrong's winning seven times in a row is because there's this whole doping mechanism underneath the whole industry? Well, because by that point, the the amount of money that he had attracted to the sport because of the cancer story was was 
good for everybody and and you, it, you can't just you can't get a bunch of guys to all say it at the same time and so as long as it's only one person saying it here and there and guys would you, you, from time to time in Europe there's a story this this guy's exposed this or this guy's exposed that but it's always one one small player and it just it gets ignored and yeah I I, I don't know what to call it, but I, I know that I, I, I just was tired of trying to explain to people my point of view without being able to just tell them the truth. So I figured if I just write it all out, then whatever their judgment is about what I did or didn't do and the, you know, and the, the morality of any of it doesn't really matter. It was just that now I can tell the truth and I can just say, here's, here's what happened and that's and, it. And what was the initial reaction once that came out? I know Lance Armstrong obviously wasn't very happy about it. Uh, what was... You know, and, and a lot of people were behind him. He had, you know, a whole infrastructure behind him. What was that? What was the initial reaction like? Well, you know, the the individual opinionated bloggers, even some fairly influential ones that sided with Lance, of course, just absolutely tore me apart and said he was lying before and he's lying now, and the whole thing's just a big lie. Look at him; he's a liar. Why wouldn't they think this? The rational thing is that oh, uh, if he was doing it, probably he wasn't the only one. <laughs> Yeah, I, honestly, I don't know. I think these people just aren't very smart. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it, it, on the face of it, it's obvious what happens in professional sports. At this at this point, there's enough information out there that if you're able to read and you can think, you can see what's happening. You don't need someone to tell you. But I was tired of trying to deny it because to me, it seemed like it was obvious. I mean, part of me thought all that time watching Lance just absolutely flaunt it was that people just wanted to be lied to. Like, maybe that's what they wanted. Maybe... Because obviously, if they sat down and thought about it, there's just simply no way that it was what they were being told it was. There, there wasn't. Right, because we because we kind of separate out athleticism from performance enhancing drugs. If there is a feeling of disappointment when, like you know, someone who reaches um, the heights of their performance, like you or like Lance Armstrong, uh, or, or like you know all these great baseball players, football players, MMA, Olympic gold medalists. There's a little disappointment to think that oh, what it's fake a little bit somehow, even though it's not because this is what how these sports work. Yeah, it's a strange thing, and I, I do believe that most people know it in their heart. They know that that's what they're watching, but they just don't want to face it, so they just rather not hear about it. So some of the times the reaction is just anger of like, just don't tell me. Maybe I don't know, but they direct it at the at the messenger, right? Um, But but the mainstream press was not. I mean, they look. They, I knew as I was writing these stories because I had them in my head. But when I wrote it out and I read it, I was I thought to myself, I, I kind of wished I had done it sooner because it, part of me did think, okay, they're going to just say he's crazy. Like these stories. First of all, he says he never did it. Now he's coming up with these wildly unbelievable stories. What was <laughs> right? most unbelievable? I mean, the, we stopped on the side of a road, and well, we over time because. And it might help to have some some background on how the testing worked. So cycling used to be able to just take EPO. It was invented in the 80s or so. Which is from a testosterone. Amgen. No, no, this is for increasing red uh, mm. red blood cell count. Um, and it's made by Amgen. And they it's been around for a long time. And so up on, until they, they came up with a test for that, which doesn't work very well, but it works well enough to, to limit the amount you can use, you could just simply use EPO during the race and you could maintain your red blood cell count much higher than what it ordinarily would be. But then they came up with a test that limited how much you could do at a given time, and it also became risky to do it in the race because then they they are around, they know where you are, and they can test you at any given time. So even if it's got a short half-life and you use a small dose, it's 
still got some risk. So then they started doing blood transfusions, which <laughs> led to, I mean, the, just the logistics of that adds a whole set of complexities that makes it just a, a complete mess because you have to have somebody storing this blood, right, for, mo- for a month at a time, and then someone's got to drive it around, and the risk of that is huge, right? If they pull somebody over with steroids in the car, nobody knows who it's for, but there's just no denying it. If it's your blood and it's like, what the hell do you need it for? <laughs> there's no excuse, right? So then the team over those years that I was on it, on on the Postal Service team, they, they became, I, they started to make themselves paranoid with, because every little thing, every every year there was more scrutiny on the team because they were winning, Right. And every year they were more paranoid that, that somebody was going to set up cameras or the police were putting cameras in the hotel room. So they didn't know where they should do the transfusion. So one time they did it after a, a mountain stage. They just stopped the bus. We have a big tour bus, right? And just all nine guys got a blood transfusion in a bus on the side of the road while they pretended that it had engine trouble. Mm. I mean, <laughs> that's not, yeah, that that was is so far from what I started cycling for that I don't even... It's hard to piece together how it got there. But it's funny that you're practically like but, a chemist now with your knowledge of like... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah, I don't so, know. So then like, it's still, after 2010, it still took two years for Lance Armstrong to kind of finally say, okay, he's right, I, I did it. Well, there's a lot on the line for him too. I mean, he, and I can't judge him because I lied for a long time about it, but he... You know, he had ongoing contracts with sponsors and things, you know, clauses in former contracts that he had had that obviously he had violated those clauses. And so he had real, you know, civil liability and possibly criminal liability. So I, yeah, I know, I know why he lied about it. And I I don't know that just given a situation without those, those risks, I don't think that just out of the goodness of his heart, he would have told the truth. But I do understand why it took him so long to come around to it. But, but mean, look, so let's let's talk about that for a second, because was there so and 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 always weighing like the 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 pros and cons of every situation. Obviously, for you, this was a big weight off your shoulders, and and you know to to write these emails and to kind of let's say expose the industry, and at the same time, completely in a different field of life. Lance Armstrong had this Live Strong Foundation, um, which was doing a lot of good for cancer research and people and so on. Was there any, you know, and since 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 he came out and admitted, not since your emails, but since he came out and admitted that he did it, that foundation has sort of been slowly, you know, drying up. Uh, w- did you, did you uh, kind of weigh those pros and cons or... Uh, I mean, w- w- what was going through your head in, in terms of how you were going to potentially affect these people that you that, that you worked with? And and by the way, I'm not I'm not making any judgment at all. I I think you did the right thing by um, kind of being being vulnerable and honest, and 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 it was probably very difficult for you. I'm just wondering what other stuff was going on. Yeah. In- well, I mean, just as as a personal, you know experience i had i had lived through three years with racing with lance and so we were at a lot of public places we did we won the tour de france so we're always out in public and you see a lot of people come and interact with him that you have a kid with cancer or people that clearly are going through chemotherapy like or a kid and you see these kids and how how delighted they are to meet the guy and i yeah i knew that there was going to be there a lot of those people were going to be upset because I mean they were inspired by the guy and that was real right the feelings they get when they see the guy they're they're inspired like he came back from cancer he did he survived cancer and he went and he won the Tour de France he did that and that's inspiring and I you know being the the messenger that somehow undoes that for them I I knew I was going to be ridiculed for that on on some level 
but I didn't I didn't know what else to do. And it, it and I it wasn't like I was given a platform where I could explain all these things. It wasn't as if I could add in the emails that oh and by the way, you know, sorry to all the cancer survivors, this isn't directed at you and you should still be inspired. Like there was no way to say any of that, right? Um and as far as what happened to the to the uh the foundation, I mean I yeah, I, I guess you could you could attribute some of that to me, but at the end of the day, it's I mean, if the Cancer Foundation stood legitimately on its own, it wouldn't make any difference what Lance Armstrong did, right? So I don't really know what's going on with that foundation, but um, it's more my bigger concern was just the people and the kids that I had seen and the, the reaction they have to. Them. I mean, it's it's real, and he he inspired those people, and um, yeah, you don't want to be the guy to point out to him that life's more complicated than that, but. If you just look at the at the pure facts that they're looking at, it's great, right? Lance, Lance Armstrong did have cancer. He didn't lie about that, at least as far as anybody knows. I, I assume it's true. And and he came back and won the tour. I saw it, and so it was inspiring. But, um, but in order people to have of, a hard time separating those those yeah. things, right? And, but in, and in order to kind of reveal what the whole industry was doing, it can't be it can't be like you separate, separate no, out you him. No, you can't do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the other problem with trying to come clean in the first place. If if I had chose to go that path and just say okay, I'm accept I'm never going to race again, these are guys that over time it became easier because I was away from them far enough. But most of these people are the same guys I raced with for ten years. You know, these are my colleagues. Like I, I now, I'm expected to turn on them because I can't really tell the story. I mean, how stupid would it have sounded if I just came out after 2006 tour and said, yeah, I did these blood transfusions and here's all the other concoctions that I that I had and, and I made it all up. No, nobody would have believed it. Right. I mean, that's first of all, it's not true, because then there would have been be follow-up like questions like, "Well, who the scientist. fuck taught you this?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it was an impossible situation. I, <laughs> but, but okay, so now here's a, a slightly trickier question: At that time, were you thinking at all? Like now, you're involved in there's a legal case because the the post office feels feels harmed by this. The the the, the pristine brand of the U.S. Post Office feels like it's been harmed. And um, so there's a legal case against Lance Armstrong as a result, and you're technically the whistleblower, which involves some financial benefit for you if if the post office wins. Was there any sense at all of the financial either benefits or consequences or anything when when you were uh, writing these emails? No, that wasn't that wasn't my motive, and I know it, it ended up looking that way. I, it didn't really end up looking that way because it's so many years later. Yeah, well, so I we we my lawyer and I filed that case six months, four, five, five, six months after I wrote those emails. And I, and at the time I did it, I wasn't contemplating that. But I, I also didn't know what the reaction was. And I didn't know, I, I one thing I do know about Armstrong is that if you want to fight the guy, you you better, have, you have to kill him because he, he'll fight until you're dead. I mean, like I knew I was putting myself diametrically opposed to him. He's going to fight, right? That's who he is. So, I had to do everything I could do to try to get the truth out because he's going to use every every means that he has to to stop it, and he has a lot of very very powerful friends, real friends that can get real things done, and on a scale that I can't. So I figured I would use every it, as I as I watched it unfold. I say said to myself, okay, he's going to fight like he always does. I know how he is. I have to do everything I can to expose this. So that includes whatever's going on with the emails and whoever's investigating that. That's one thing. But I can file this other lawsuit, and I can force the rest of the peloton to come and talk to them. We can subpoena people, 
Because that's the problem with the anti-doping agency. They don't have any subpoena power because they, they don't want to go into a real court. They use, and people are finally becoming familiar with this. I had to live it. They use arbitration to essentially prosecute a crime. So there's no, there are no rules of discovery. I didn't, I was not entitled to anything. I like you, you don't get the evidence against you. Fuck off. They just stripped them out. You don't get it. Yeah. yeah. So they can't expose the rest of this stuff because in arbitration, you can't compel anyone to testify. That's just how it is. And so the alternative would be for them to go and, and actually try these things in a real court, which would be fine, but then they'd be subject to actual scrutiny about their dumb tests that don't work. So they're never going to do that. So they didn't have the power and they refused to go and get the power to actually expose this. So one way to do it was for me to say, if I file this lawsuit, they're going to bring in everybody they can think of that might have known something. And these guys are not, I mean, they're not, they're, they're very tough guys. And a lot of them are, are pretty smart guys that race bikes, but they're not going to sit in front of an FBI agent or sit in front in a deposition in a civil case and lie. They're just not going to do it. I mean, they might be scared of Lance and their career in cycling, but they they're not going to prison for him. So for me, it was just another mechanism to say, okay, then we have to force the truth out because I, for, for the six years before that, I was treated as the worst human being on earth by, you know, at least it felt that way because people said I lied. Well, now I'm telling the truth and I'm going to make everyone else tell the truth because that's the only way to get the story out that makes any sense. The story doesn't make any sense if I invented doping. That's not even, that can't be real. Right, which is, which is really like kind of the, the only other science fiction alternative that people could have to keep their worldview intact. And yet nobody really seemed to do that. And no one seems to do that in any sport. No, it's not don't. like all these guys hitting home runs are the only ones taking steroids in baseball. No. <laughs> I mean, they just happen to be the best ones taking steroids in baseball. Right, absolutely. And, and so what happens to sports? Given that there's like tens of billions of dollars backing all these sports in every, in every sport, I mean, it, it does seem to me that pe people could, should just acknowledge, okay, it's like you were saying, this is what happens when you reach a certain level. And not that it's good or bad, it's kind of like you have to teach kids to evaluate for themselves and maybe don't hold up, you know, hold people up to some uh, idolization, but That's not fine, every yeah. idolization. Yeah, right, and they're humans at the end of the day. So just, you know, pick the part that inspires you about them, what they're doing, they're living their dream and all these other things, but but know the truth about it so that if you get kids to actually put that much effort and time into something, that they don't find out that they've been lied to. I don't. I mean, I just don't see how that's better for the kids. I don't get it. Well, well you know what's funny is, is that there's the equivalent of doping in, let's say, every industry. Let's just take that as an example. Like, you go to Silicon Valley, and a lot of people have written, many people in Silicon Valley take all sorts of performance-enhancing drugs to be at their best performance. But that's not like... And kids are inspired by these people, but because somehow because it's not like an athletic or quote-unquote healthy thing, then... They're like, okay, this is what I have to do to be like at the top of my game in Silicon Valley. Yeah, people people hold sports at a strange place in their in their minds. It's not like anything else, and they and they have these. I mean, there's these contradictions that they're willing to accept that they would they would not accept anywhere else, or even bother to address anywhere else. Like you said with Silicon Valley, people know it all, but they don't even talk about. It. No one cares. It just that's part of it. They're perfectly fine accepting that. Okay, if I get a job in Silicon Valley, I'll, I'll go take some mushrooms too if that makes me smarter. That's fine. No one thinks twice about that. But sports are held to a different standard that, that no one else is held to. But on the other hand, yeah, it, it's, it's big business now, and I'm probably not the right guy to be even talking about my opinion on big, big sports now, but <laughs> the whole thing is a... I think people will just continually kind of half deny it just because they love sports. They like it, yeah. <laughs> and they don't want to kind of join... 
But the I mean, chemical chemistry aspects of sports yeah. with the physical aspects of sports. But look at the other things that happen that they they accept in sports that they would be outraged about if it happened elsewhere. I mean, we have football stadiums that are paid for by taxpayer money. We're talking like eighteen billion dollars in taxpayer money has gone to build NFL stadiums in the last twenty years. Not to mention and, and the level. They're of perfectly fine in, with that. In, with, oh in yeah, the thing. It's, I mean, the whole thing's bizarre, right? Like, what person in their right mind ever thought it was a good idea to hit your head? They tell you that when you're a kid: don't hit your head; it'll hurt. Right. Yeah. The NFL still doesn't know that, and everyone's fine accepting that. Right. <laughs> it, the whole thing is weird. Sports are held to a, a standard that doesn't make any sense. That's the problem. But and now though. Okay, so so it's sort of like now you're entering in a new phase. You've 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 you're, you're reinventing your career. You're, uh, you know, last really set of questions, and maybe we should have addressed this earlier. But what business are you in now? <laughs> yeah, so we, um, I'm in the marijuana business. Um, I've been living in Colorado for a while when they initially um, legalized it, and so I started a brand of of vaping products and you know marijuana. THC containing products there, and you're going into edibles. Yeah, and edibles, and so we're in the process of of putting up, um, setting up a, a greenhouse farm so we can cultivate our own. Initially, we, up until now, we've been buying raw product. But the thing I'm more excited about is the is the CBD side of it, the hemp CBD oil. I, you know, initially I thought most of the effects that people were looking for come from THC. CBD doesn't generally have, or if it has any, a very subtle, you know. Uh, psychological effect or, or um, effect on your on your state of mind um, but it has but it has this really nice relaxing feeling and and it's just it really helps to manage stress and it helps with just any kind of pain or aches it's it's really incredible stuff I I mean <laughs> so you take so let's say if, if you take it how long before you start to feel the relaxation and uh... so it's very very subtle and it's more like when you get into stressful situations let's say you, you I think you have to take it for about a week to before you notice, um, if you take it once a day for a week, and then you then you think about how you're how you're managing a stressful situation where you have multiple things that would otherwise make you feel anxious, you'll you'll notice a, a real difference. But it it's really subtle, but it's it's real and and it helps with just sleep and organizing your thoughts. It's it's incredible stuff. I mean, I can't believe that uh, that it's ever been taboo to to allow people to grow hemp and and extract this stuff and sell it. Um, it's still, but it's it's like everything. It's like uh, you know. So in the 1920s, you know, jazz clubs or whatever of Harlem, people were smoking marijuana, whereas uh, white people were drinking alcohol. So right, yeah. one thing became legal again, and the other thing stayed uh, illegal, and everybody went to jail. Yeah, well, a bunch of black people went to jail. Is what happened. That's the sad part of it all. I mean, that's the whole other side of it. I mean. I, I appreciate the stuff and I use it and I'm in the business because it helped me. But the things you, you learn when you start focusing on this, the fact that we have a private prison system and these mandatory minimum sentences and, and the fact that more, I mean, a black kid in exactly the same circumstance is four times more likely to go to prison for possession of marijuana than a white kid given exactly the same charges. There's, there's no way to look at it as anything other than a racist law. Yeah. There's, no, there's no other way to see it. And so now you're how how's business going? Like how how how's it going? It's you know, good. Yeah, you reinvented no, it completely. No, it's good. And we so we sell our CBD, our hemp CBD line of products online, and it's so that reaches a much broader. Is it legal like in, in some states to buy across states? Yeah, and, we ship uh, it to any state in the United States. We don't sell it internationally. There's some complexities there, but um, so yeah, we ship it from the website. And, and what, what's the company the called? The response has been great. The, so the company's called Floyd's of Leadville. We started it up in Leadville. 
and floydsofleadville.com is where we sell the stuff. And it, ours is very, very high quality and it's, and it's very good price. There's, there are a lot of different brands out there. Some of them are, are gouging people, but honestly, this stuff has done so much for me that if, if we can get people to try it and, and realize what it'll do for you, it's, I, I feel like I'm overselling it every time. It just, I mean, it's, it's real. Well, uh, Floyd Landis, 2006 Tour de France winner, and also uh, a profile and courage of in terms of how you you know expose the industry and your and your honesty about about what's going on and, and sports in general. Plus, now uh, you've reinvented yourself into a, a, a new industry. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I, I hope these questions were like. Fair. You didn't feel judged. No, by no, not at all. I, I don't. I'm past that point anyway. I don't. And and for me, I just want to know everything. No, so. and look, the, the, so back to the other point that that's what I appreciate about you. You were willing to sit here and have a dialogue, not hide behind your computer. And and right, those are the people that I don't, don't care to talk to. But so there's no question that's off the table. I'm I'm comfortable here, and I appreciate the time. And I really, yeah, it's it's it feels good for me to be able to just articulate some of these things that I you know for whatever reason have been unable to do so in in public. Well, thanks again for coming on. Thanks, man. That was great. Yeah, yeah, I, think, I appreciate I think it. People will be very interested because in I don't think people really know the whole story. And like I, like I said, I think, like I just think from of myself as like kind of an outsider that I essentially have been in denial about it. Like, oh, okay, this person did dope, and that's why he won. But nobody else dopes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so. it's part partly it's it's a it's misleading that they that they say they're doing all these tests because really they only test a few people. So to just say, well, we're cleaning up cycling because we tested the guys that are winning. It's like okay, well then the goal would just be to get second, I guess, from now. On. <laughs> what what are, like do you think in tennis they all? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, tennis does. Tennis has a much better, better ice skating. Yeah, I don't know that much about it. Speed skating, it would absolutely be helpful. So there's almost no chance it doesn't exist there. I don't, I don't know about the the more artistic uh, sports in the Olympics. Like those, they still take athleticism, and so it would still help. But I, I don't, I just don't know if those, if that's the same kind of culture. To me, that like that's a different kind of competition. Like when you're head to head in a football game, like you're actually trying to kill the guy, right? Or if you're in a bike race and you're, you have to push people out of it's physical like that. Whereas those sports where you, where you're just you're being judged by a by a group of judges and you're just performing on your own for your own sake. You're not, it doesn't feel like competing in that sense. Next time on the James Altucher Show. My sister, she said, Dad, I think I know who kidnapped Elizabeth. And he said, well, who, who, who is it? And she said, I think it was Emmanuel. That was the name that he had used um, all during my kidnapping. What was going through your head the first time you maybe had an opportunity to escape? On the one hand, I was extremely hopeful. I, I did want to be rescued. I wanted to go home more than anything. Um, but on the other side of things, as soon as that police officer walked in and flipped his badge open, Wanda Barzi, she immediately just clamped her hand down on my leg. And it was just like, it was like reliving everything all over again. It was like being kidnapped all over again. It was like being raped all over again for the first time. It was like being chained up all over again for the first time. What was the core, do you think, of what got you through those nine months? Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening today. 
I'm really happy with this podcast today. If you like this interview, I know you'll like so many more. You can be the first to hear all my new episodes by subscribing now on Apple Podcasts or whatever app you listen to. Thanks.